Well, some parent-child conversations are as predictable as the sunrise. See if you can predict with me on this one. Child, I think I should be able to do such and such, such and such, mom. Mom or dad, who told you that? Child, my friend Susie told me, and all my other friends are doing it too. Parent, if all your friends were jumping off a bridge, continue on, would you do it too? Okay? Now, we've not had one class here where we'd work on memorizing that, right? But you all knew it smoothly. Very common. Now, veiled in that parent-child exchange is actually a much deeper and philosophical question. Who or what is the final authority over anything? Mommy? Susie? Somebody else? A big people version of this was a year ago with all the elections that were going on. As one candidate would say, I think this is the way that it should be. And I am citing this survey and this poll and this authority and this, you know, scientific report. Only to have the other candidates say, you are completely wrong and here's why I think this is the way that it should be, citing his particular survey and polling and scientific report. And back and forth they went. Each of them with their own set of facts, each of them with their own interpretation. You turn on the TV now or you go to Applebee's or wherever and they've got the CNN and Fox and MSNBC and you've got these talking heads and what are they doing all day? They're telling you what they think reality is. They're telling you what they think the truth is from their perspective. From the playground to the White House, we are all living our lives according to some authority that we think is the right one or is the best one. And even everything I've said so far today, you have been evaluating through a grid in your mind whether or not you think that that's true or not, whether you believe that or not, whether I'm trustworthy in saying it or not. We all have a grid by which we are evaluating things. We all have an authority, a truth that we are holding to and living our lives according to. But the question, of course, is what is true? And what is authoritatively true? What is over? What truth is over all the other subtruths and narratives and interpretations? This is what Pontius Pilate was getting at when he said to Jesus famously in John 18, What is truth? And this was the battleground of the Reformation. If there was anything that was the point of conflict, it was this. Who gets to say what goes? Who gets to say what is true? Who gets to say what is doctrinally right? Who gets to say what happens and what the church is to believe? And this is our third week in this uh, series that we're calling the Sola Series, a series on the doctrines of the Reformation. 500 years ago, next month, is the anniversary of what people mark as the beginning of the Reformation, this tsunami of truth that swept into uh, Western Europe through guys like Martin Luther and Ulrich Zwingli and others that 
transformed the medieval church. It recovered the gospel out of the medieval church. That church had been for centuries layering tradition upon tradition and man's declaration upon man's declaration. It was the church of rituals and smells and bells. And in the midst of all of that, the gospel was obscured and You could go to church and not even ever hear the gospel of Jesus, much less anything beyond that. So these clouded and distracted and obscured the essential gospel. And so the the reformers recovered the essential gospel, and that is summarized in what is known as the solas, okay? Sola means alone. So uh, scripture alone, scriptura, sola scriptura, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, and God's glory alone, sola Deo gloria. Last week we talked about probably the most famous moment in the Reformation when in 1517 Martin Luther, actually I don't have that date right, 1517 is when he nailed the 95 Theses. It was after that that there was the Diet of Worms or Verms that he stands before a council that's basically been called to declare him a heretic and possibly put him to death. And they say, you recant, Martin Luther, of all these teachings, and they point to the books that he has written that's piled on the table, or we're going to declare you a heretic and excommunicate you out of the church. And Martin Luther famously said these words, I consider myself convicted by the testimony of Holy Scripture, which is my basis. My conscience is captive to the word of God, thus I cannot and I will not recant. So help me God. And last week we talked about how what he, was, what he was putting his finger on was the central issue when he said, I am convicted by Holy Scripture alone. And we had this diagram that, that shows the relationship. Here's the possible relationships between the Word of God and the church. So you have the possibility, the possibility that the church would be over Scripture. Now, I don't know anybody that teaches that. I know people that practice that, but I don't know anybody that teaches that. The second is actually the teaching of, uh, of, the, of the medieval church, which was that scripture and the teachings of the church and the declarations of the councils and the popes, etc., are on equal footing. They are the same. They are inspired. They are authoritative. They are together. And the reformers said, no, this is the way that it should be. God's word is over the words of men. God's word is more important, more authoritative, more truth-filled than any word from any man, no matter who he is, which, by the way, is the position of this church, uh, which makes us, I guess, a Protestant church. We believe that Scripture is over the teachings of men. And so the Reformers refused to allow anything to, to trump the authority of God's word. And we saw that in, in, in God's word, that means at least three qualities that are essential for us to understand. We call them the ends, okay? Inspiration, that the Bible is breathed out by God, that God is the source of scripture, that the Bible is inerrant. Since God is true, there can be no error in anything that he does or speaks. It is inerrant. And it is infallible, which means that the, the word cannot be false, because God is true. And we pointed to 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good 
work. Now, we spent last week just really talking about this first clause here, that the Bible is inspired, breathed out by God. Today, I want to talk with you a sort of soul scripture, a 2.0. Like, what does it mean in the everyday living of life for me to believe in scripture alone, that the Bible is the final word and the final authority? And we see Paul writing here to Timothy, and he says, the fruit of the inspiration of God's word in the life of the man or the woman is that it reproves us, it corrects us, it teaches us, and it trains us in a way that matures us spiritually. The, the, the man of God may be thoroughly equipped, and we are then ready for every good work that God would call us to. This is the effect of the word of God. Now, this is not because we are unbelievable, amazing people. We are bastions of truth, that there is goodness in our heart, and, and that the, the Bible is fertilizer that blooms and blossoms the inherent goodness that we have within us. Oh, no, no, my friends. We know each other, we know each other good enough. That is not true, right? We are not fundamentally good people. We are fundamentally sinful people. But this is the power of the word of God, that through the gospel first, And through the ongoing ministry of the word in our life, that God's word bears its good fruit in us and grows us and matures us and prepares us to be the people that God would have us to be and to do the things he wants us to do. It is because God's word itself is life-changing. And with the Holy Spirit indwelling us, this is how it works. This is how God changes us. Listen to what the Bible says about itself. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. In other words, we don't judge the Bible. It judges us. It shows us for who we are. It is living and it is active. It is dynamic. If you, go to the, if you go to Barnes & Noble, you can pick any book that you want off the shelf, and it is not going to have those qualities to it. It is not going to be living. It is not going to be active. It is going to be the words of man, which cannot do what God's word can do. This Bible that we have, there is a power to it, sourced in God by the Holy Spirit that does something in us. It changes us. It makes us into the people that God would have us to be. This is the God who spoke and the world came into existence. Imagine, all there is is darkness and God says, let there be light. Now, was there a bunch of scientists and engineers and said, light, 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 let's figure out how do, how do we get light in here? Somebody quick, flip a switch. No. God's word is self-creating. He is God. When he speaks, it makes whatever he intends. And that same word through the Bible, through the word of God, when God speaks to us, it has its effect. It never comes back void. It is powerful and effective. It changes us. It bears the quality of God. And since God is transcendent over everything and everybody, It speaks with authority that nothing else can. So the reformers had it right. There is no pope or pastor or council or layperson, no matter 
how insightful they may be, no matter how many degrees after their name, no matter any of that stuff, there is nobody that speaks with the power that God's word contains. So therefore, our words can be true, but they are only judged to be true if they are consistent with what God has said is true. That's a key point. So it's not to say, therefore, that human teaching is wrong. In fact, the Bible calls us to human teaching. And the Reformation was this explosion of of God's people loving and treasuring and enjoying the teaching of God's word. I mean, for all those centuries, the Bible was in Latin. Nobody knew what it said. The sermons were dry. The gospel was obscure. As I said before, it was the church of smells and bells. and Nobody knew anything what it meant. And all of a sudden, the reformers came along and said, this is what God says. And they said it in a language people could understand, in a way that they could apply to their life. And the people loved it. Luther starts writing these books and pamphlets, and the Gutenberg Press had just been invented, and they're like, his things came, became the bestsellers in all of Europe was the writings of the reformers. And people are reading, and people are hungry, and people are learning. It had been a desert, but now the desert is blooming. One of the things that was a privilege for me in the Reformation tour some years ago that I went on was we went to Geneva, Switzerland, where Calvin's church was. And we went into the church, and I don't know if there was a college intern who happened to be in charge while we were there, but our tour guide, Erwin Lutzer, said this is incredibly rare because they gave him permission, and he got special permission for me to go into Calvin's pulpit in Calvin's church. Took a picture, got to show it to you. Okay, got to show it to you. Can we make it big, please? There we go. All right. I think God would bless our church if it had more stone in it, don't you think? <laughs> and a higher pulpit. Like, I need, I want to look down on you people so badly. Calvin preached over 2,000 sermons from that pulpit. Amazing ministry that he had there. And the people, the people loved it. And that was true across Europe. There was just this, like, the God's people just came alive to the word of God, and they wanted it, they craved it, they, they loved it. And why did they love it? Because for all those centuries, there was confusion about who do you listen to, and what's the authority, and who says what? Now, all that mattered was what God said, what God said. As a side note, here at Bethel Church, this is why the general practice of our church is what is known as expositional preaching. Expositional preaching is a kind of preaching where we begin with what the Bible says. Oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes, that means preaching through books of the Bible, We begin with what the Bible says. We try to understand what God has said. We try to interpret it rightly, try to teach it rightly, and then we say, how do we apply this to life? It begins with God, it doesn't begin with man. It begins with what God has said, not what the pastor thinks, or what I think you're gonna wanna hear. It begins with what God has said, okay? And we wanna be that kind of a Bible-teaching, Bible-preaching church. And by the way, a side note to my side note, That also means it doesn't matter who's doing it. It doesn't matter who's doing it. It doesn't matter if I'm in the pulpit or somebody else is in the pulpit. What matters is that God's word is being proclaimed. Yes, let's get somebody else up there. 
I heard that clap. My mom will talk to you after the service. The test, the test is whether what is being taught is consistent with God's word. Now, the elders have a responsibility for guarding the doctrine of the church, but ultimately, this is a responsibility of the congregation. And that is why, side note to the side note to the side note, I think you should bring your Bibles with you to church. I have felt, I feel torn on whether or not we should put the Bible verses on the screen for you to read them. Because I think it makes you lazy. And you say, well, I'm just going to sort of sit back and I think it makes us lazy. I would much prefer that you own a Bible, that you bring your Bible, and that you are looking at it, studying it for yourself. And that's what the Reformers urged, and that is what empowered the Reformation. The Reformation got rid of lots of things, by the way. They got rid of Anything they saw as not being consistent with God's word. So the icons of the church, out. The priestly vestments, out. I'm so glad. I don't have to wear some hat and heavy clothing or whatever. Everything was vetted by scripture. Scripture was translated into the language of the people. Now the people could read the Bible for themselves and go, uh, 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 I don't think so. Look it. So that said, what is the Christian's relationship to Scripture? And I have a diagram here that I think illustrates this, and I just want to walk through this in the rest of my message today. What is the Christian's relationship to Scripture? And what I want to say is that it is the authority that is over us. It is the foundation or the promises that are under us. It is God's Word in us through Bible intake And it is God's word through us in obedience and guidance by God's word. So let's walk through these and let's begin with scripture over us. This is that we submit to scripture. This is the question of authority, foundational issue of the Reformation. And I I like the word submit, it's a Bible word, but I think it lacks something as we see this because we could look at that and go, oh yes, okay, we'll cower under the word of God or as long as I'm like, yes, whatever the word of God says. No, there's much more to this. Listen to Isaiah 66. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. Here's the key. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. What Isaiah 66 says, God says, listen, heaven is my footstool. You can't build a house for me. Like I look down upon the world. I look down upon heaven. I am more great, more glorious than than these things are. I tremble or I'm sorry, I, the, the one that I look down upon, the one that I actually notice is the one who is humble and contrite. And what does that look like? He trembles at my word. There is a sense in his heart of reverence that means that there is a kind of trembling. 
that, I, that this is God's word. I don't discard it. I don't think nothing of it. No, this is, this is the word of God, which is far greater than any word of man. Why not read the Bible like the newspaper? Here's why. Because the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. Or to say it this way, the New York Times will wither and Oprah's book club will fade away. Barnes and Noble will wither and Borders Bookstore will fade away and all the books that are in them. But the word of God stands forever. One million books published every year in the world. Library of Congress, 16 million volumes in the Library of Congress. The internet, the, 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 the accumulation of all of the wisdom of man, all of the discoveries of man, everything that man has thought about everything that man can think of. And yet all of it will wither and burn. But the smallest thing that God has said will last forever. Jesus said that right down to the jot and the tittle, the punctuation marks even, are going to be fulfilled. This is the word of God. And our trembling towards God's word, it's not, again, it's not just like a, like a dog that, that is afraid of its owner. No. Listen to Psalm 119. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Psalm 119, we studied this summer, right? This incredibly long love song. It is itself longer than like 35 books of the Bible. It's a love song to the Bible, to the law of God. Ten times uses the word delight. It says in there, I have more delight in you than things that we actually take a lot of delight in, like sweets, right? Honey or money, thousands of pieces of gold and silver. Tremble and love. Now let's be honest for a moment. Much of the time, we would not describe our perspective on God's word as tremble and love. How about ambivalent and disinterested? Right? It's a morning. You know you need to like spend some time in the word. How do you feel about that? Every morning is it like, woo? No. Not all the time that way. Isn't it great to hear the preaching of God's word? I love it, I love it, I love it. Not all the time. Sometimes it's a duty to act like you're interested in the sermon as he's preaching, right? (laughs) I know this is true because I see how long Bibles remain in our lost and found. It's almost as if there's people that don't even realize their Bible is missing for months on end. Now, friends, the real issue here is not our perspective on the Bible. The real issue is our perspective on God. The higher we view God, the more glorious we see God, the higher we treasure God, the more we are going to treasure what he has said. This is the way that it works. If you go to the mailbox... You open the mailbox and you start you know, going through all the mail, you've got what we call junk mail. And what's junk mail? Something sent to me from somebody that I do not know. Comcast, local bank with toaster giveaway, blah, 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 right? What do we do with those? Throw away, throw away, throw away. But then you see a note from somebody and you tell it's like handwritten. 
And you look at the address, and you're like, I know who that is, and, uh, the return address. And you're like, hey, this is great. So if you're like me, I like to save that for the end. So Bill, 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 personal note. And if, if it's from somebody that you love, mother, father, husband, wife, boyfriend, girlfriend, that note can be read not just one time. Man, I'm going to read this again. I'm going to put it on my fridge with a magnet. I'm going to put it by my nightstand. I'm going to read that again tonight. I want to read it again. Why? Because I love the person who wrote it. The more I love the person who wrote it, the more valuable what they say to me is. And the same is true with God. The more glorious, the more wonderful, the more thankful, the more worshipful, the more reverent that I am towards God, the higher I am going to hold what he has said. And so the issue today is not that you need to walk out going, I need to value God's word more. No. You value God more, you'll value his word more. That's the real issue, is a low view of God. So scripture is over us. We submit to it. We tremble at it. We love it. Next, we have scripture that is under us, okay, under us. We stand on scripture. I told the story earlier that Luther stands before the council there. These guys, like, they they are mad at him. They hate him. They're spitting fire at him. And Luther knows that, like, his days might be numbered. And they say, you got to recant. And here's this pile of books. you got to recant from all of this. And Luther says, I will not recant. Here I stand. I can do no other. What was Luther standing on? He was standing on the fact that the Bible is the final authority. He was standing on what the Bible teaches, not what the Pope said or the council said or anybody else said, but what God's word says. We see that then, that scripture is not merely over him as authority, it was under him as a foundation of faith and hope. To stand means to trust, right? When you put your foot on a, on a step, you're believing that it's going to hold your weight. Trust in God, in his word, that it will prove to be true. Trust in the promises of God. Listen to this, for example. Here's how it works as a Christian. I'm in a hard time. I'm struggling. My faith is weak. I'm questioning things. I read Isaiah 41, verse 10. Fear not, I am with you. Be not dismayed. I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. Or Psalm 116, 118. The Lord is at my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Right? These and like a hundred, hundreds of other promises that God makes in the Bible. And we're living life, right? We're living life. And sometimes the Bible is not, doesn't feel that needed to us. But then we get in a trial and we get into trouble. And like you have cancer and your child's got this and you've got this going on. And our faith gets weak and we begin to wonder what is true? What can I believe in? And the Christian goes to the Bible and hears these, these promises. And faith apprehends the promises and says, here I stand. There are verses in the Bible that if you read it to me, to this day, years later, it would take me back to a trial where God used that verse in my life. I'll bet you have some of those as well. How wonderful to stand on God's word. 
Jesus said it this way. There are people, they stand, they build their entire life on sand. This would be the teachings of man, the wisdom of man. And then there are people that build their entire life on the rock. And what is that? That is the gospel, and that is God's word. And he says, and then the storm comes, and the rain comes, and the house built on the sand, kids, does what? Falls splat. But the house built on the rock stands firm. This is the privilege that we have to have God's word and to build our lives on truth that is eternal. Like the buildings in the hurricanes, what a terrible month we've had with hurricanes. You see those pictures right after the hurricane has gone through and there's like all these buildings that are flattened but there's some that are standing. Did the hurricane make the foundation weak or strong? No, it revealed which foundation was weak and strong. And our lives are like that. Troubles come in our life. Where do we go? Who do we turn to? Whose shoulder do I cry on? The Christian goes to the word of God and for centuries has gone to the word of God and has said, here I stand and applied the promises of God by faith. Now here's some Bethel Church history. 18 years ago when we built this auditorium, we had our our grand opening, and at the grand opening we showed a video where before they poured the cement over the stage here, me and another guy snuck in here and we buried a English Bible, a Greek New Testament, and a hymnal, and then covered it with dirt, and then the builders came and they layered the concrete over it, and we didn't tell anybody until the grand opening, and we played the video showing us being like, he, he, we are, we're digging this in here, right? Everyone thought, that's so great. Well, we were privileged to have the first pastor of our church, Joe Stoll II. Uh, he was in his early 90s, and he was sitting right here in the front row, and uh, right after the video, I said, it's so wonderful to have Dr. Joe Stoll here with us. We're so privileged to have you with us. And, and would you please come to the stage? And very slow, elderly man, he you know, kind of shuffles his way all the way up here, and he takes the pulpit like this, and he looks down, and he says, it's good to be standing on the promises. <laughs> I sat in the front row. I was in awe. I was like, wow, if I can like chew my food at 92, I'll be happy, much less be that clever. It was amazing. But how true that is, we stand on the promises of God, as the old hymn says. Here we stand, we can do no other. So, Scripture under us as foundation, Scripture over us as authority. But none of that really matters if this one is not true. We must have Scripture in us, right? It's got to be in us. Listen to Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, richly. Not sparingly, not meagerly, but richly. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. The Reformation, it was this explosion of truth in the hearts and the lives of the common people. That's why the translation from the Latin into the languages, Luther into German, Wycliffe into English, Tyndale into English, and others, why that was such a huge thing. People could literally now, for the first time, read and understand the Bible. There were people that gave their lives, Wycliffe and Tyndale famously, giving their life simply to produce a, lay, a Bible in the language of the people. 
Why were they so committed to this? Why were they willing to give their lives for this? Because they believed God's word to be true. Listen to what Peter says, 1 Peter 2. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. Like newborn infants. Now some of you, if you're parents, and you've had an infant, you know what this is like, right? An infant has no problem telling you, or communicating that he or she is hungry. What do they do? And you can, you can reason with them, you can rationalize with them. Oh, sweetheart, you just ate two, two hours ago. You don't get to eat for two more hours. It doesn't work, does it? That child wants to be fed. They want their food right now. Nothing else is going to satisfy them. And Peter says, when it comes to God's word, the church people should be, wah, wah, wah. I would love it if next Sunday, when I get up to preach, the whole place goes, wah, wah, wah. <laughs> Not to be funny or goofy, but because true in your heart, you're ready to hear God's word. Long for it, crave it, let it dwell richly within you. And how do we get the scriptures in us? Many ways, I'm just gonna touch on these. Read it, memorize it, meditate on it, talk about it with others. I have found a very helpful question, what's God teaching you in your life right now? What have you been reading? It just gets the conversation going. Hearing it taught and preached, teaching it to others, pray it, sing it, quote it, many other ways. And we are so blessed to live in a day where we've got so much access to Scripture, right? Most of us have a Bible. If you don't, ask for one at the, at the desk, we'll probably give you one. Most of us have apps on our Bible with multiple translations, all kinds of cross-referencings, all kinds of Bible study tools, and it's at our fingertips, you can get in your car after this service and you can push a button and you can listen to, on the radio, the declaration of God's word. It might be the Journey program, by the way. You'd be like, enough of him today. Do you realize how privileged we are? We're gonna get to heaven you're gonna say, hey, I'm so-and-so. And they're gonna say, hey, when, did you, when did you live on earth? Oh, I was kind of in that like, you know, late uh, 20th century, early 21st century. And people, most of the people, they're going to be like, you had no idea how good you had it. That's how it's going to be. We have it, all of this, all the time. Make it a priority. Scripture over us as authority. Scripture under us as a foundation. Scripture in us through meditation and other means. But here's the bottom line. You can have all of that and completely miss the boat. What do I mean? The Bible says that the final test of whether or not God's word is dwelling within us is whether we do what it says. Again, a parenting illustration. Parents, see if you can relate to, uh, with this to me. You say to your child who's watching TV around bedtime, sweetheart, turn off the television. It's time to go to bed. She doesn't move. Sweetheart, 
turn off the television. It's time to go to bed. She doesn't move. You say to her, sweetheart, are daddy's words important to you? Oh, yes, daddy. Your words are more important than anything else to me. Really? Because it sure doesn't look like it. And I wonder how often God must look down at us and hear our doctrinal commitments to the authority of God's word, to hear, see us nodding our heads at sola scriptura messages, oh yes, amen, that is so true, to hear our passion about some truth, uh, you know, whatever it might be that we get passionate about, but then he looks at our lives. Is there any reflection in our life that we are actually prioritizing what God has said? Is it bearing any fruit in our life? How do you know if Scripture is over you, under you, and in you? Here's what James says. Do not merely be hearers of the word, but be doers as well. This is known as obedience, okay? Obedience. And James goes on to describe, he says, you know what it's like to hear God's word and God's truth and then not do what it says? You're like somebody whose hair is all messed up, face is all messed up, straight out of bed. You look in the mirror and you see the way that you are, and then you walk away and you completely forget about it. In other words, the clear vision of who you are makes no change in your life. And James is basically saying the Bible is like a mirror. It shows us who we are. It tells us who we are in the eyes of God. And if I am going to hear it truly, it is going to make a difference in the way that I live. And that is obedience. We must obey. If my daughter says, okay, daddy, click, click, run up the stairs to go to bed, how do I think about it? I think I must be an amazing father. Look at how obedient this child is. No, here's what I know. I know that she is putting my desires ahead of her own. She wants to stay there. She wants to watch TV until 3 a.m. But daddy said, it's time to go to bed. How do we know if God, what God says is more important than what we think, what we feel, the priorities of our heart? If we do what he tells us to do. And that is the bottom line. And yes, we believe in grace and we believe in forgiveness and we're all sinners, yes. But the bottom line of sola scriptura is life scriptura, the living out of scripture in our life. So obedience, and secondly, is guidance by God's word. Let's be honest, so many decisions that we make in life are not moral decisions where God wants me to do this and Satan wants me to do this, which should I do? Most of them are wisdom decisions where I've got four options, I'm not sure what to do. Here's what the Bible, or what God has said about how he shapes and directs us in life. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Matthew 6, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, Romans 12. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding. Acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight, Titus 3, 5. God's word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Now, everybody hear this, but especially young people. Hear me. Your life is going to be the sum of your decisions, and those decisions are either going to be wise or they are going to be foolish. And how does the young man keep his way pure? 
by living according to every word from the mouth of God. In other words, as I have Bible intake, as I read it, as I treasure it, as I have it as authority over my life, as it's the foundation under my feet, as I am prioritizing what God says I should do over what I feel or what I think, God is shaping the inclinations and desires of my heart so that then the inclinations and the decisions that I make are towards what would please the Lord. It's called having a renewed mind, and God's word renews our minds. And now what I want is what God wants. And the decisions that I make conform with what he would have in my life. And with those come the blessing of God. And don't we all want that in our life? Allow God's word to be like a flashlight, okay? A lamp to our feet. Nobody puts their flash, no, you're never in the dark, you never click the flashlight so you can see where you've been, right? It's always for where you're going. And God's word is helpful for that, for living our life and making decisions and moving forward in the life that he's given to us. So with that, let's review, okay? Let's review. What is the relationship between a Christian and scripture? It is the authority over us. It is the foundation and the promises under us. We intake the Bible, we intake scripture in so many different means, but it's a priority in our life. And in the end, we live that out by obedience to God's moral will and guidance and decisions by his precepts. And that's sola scriptura, okay? So let's make sure that we are doctrinally right through right thinking and right living. I conclude with Psalm 18, verse 30. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. And may we be those people. Amen. Amen.